it it seemed in some ways counterintuitive to to make your monster be so exposed to the audience you know it's the opposite of the mm-hmm. the, the lesson of jaws and alien but i really wanted to to, to give Tobin Bell an opportunity to to make this his great work, he he's always inhabited the character in a, in a in a way that's kind of kind of weird to experience it. He is John Kramer. He's the nicest guy in the world and would never hurt a fly. Mm-hmm. But there is something in his personality that has carried this saga forward, and it it is the essential element. And welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, the serial killer Jigsaw is back and up to new terrifying tricks in director Kevin Gruterit's horror thriller, Saw 10. In the latest installment of the long-running franchise, Jigsaw undergoes an experimental procedure in hopes of finding the miracle cure for his cancer. When he discovers the entire operation is a scam to defraud the most vulnerable, he is armed with newfound purpose and turns the tables on the con artists by devising new versions of his trademark traps. In addition to Saw 10, Gruterte's other directorial credits include the feature films Saw 6, Saw 3D, Jezebel, Visions, and Jackals. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Gruterte spoke with director Marcus Dunstan about filming Saw 10. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. All right. Thank you for coming and thank you for staying. Uh, I know it's a, it's a long movie, and if you were here for Exorcist as well, then uh, it's a particularly long night, so I triply appreciate it. Um, I'm Kevin, uh, director and editor of the film. Mark. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, and I'm Marcus, a grateful uh, buddy of Kevin's and uh, one of the fellow stops along the way for this this long, long story. Don't be shy. Uh, Marcus is a director-writer himself, and he wrote four of the Saw movies, including the first two uh, films that I directed, Saw 6 and 7. So he uh, he knows the franchise very well and, uh, you know, is the perfect person to be uh, talking about oh, it with you. Thank you. Goodness. This is your night. Happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Happy Halloween. What a fantastic thing for them to, to do this. Uh, you know, I, I came to... Uh, Directing pretty late in life and uh, came to the DGA even uh, later than that. So, you know, it's it's a thrill. It's terrifying. But, uh, you know, it's also really wonderful. I never I never really thought I'd be here. And uh, so it's great. Well, one of the only reasons I'm here is because of you. One of your signatures is the reason I'm actually here. <laughs> and right. that is, yeah, so the, the, the gratitude is, is going and going and going. Right I wanted to educate the folks that are seeing this. What are some of the secret credits of yours as a storyteller, as an editor, that we may not know about? The, the, the ghost editor, if you will. Um, well, it's, uh, I, I, do, uh, I do more editing than directing. Maybe that will change uh, with the <laughs> success of this film. I, I hope so, but I, I really do love, uh, love editing. But um, I don't know if I want to go too specific. Okay. Like, there's, there are plenty that I'm credited for, but then there are others where, uh, uh, you know, there's either no credit or there's like a okay. consultant type credit to it. But I've worked on I've worked on quite a few movies, all of them horror. You know, I love horror. Uh, I want to do more than horror, uh, to say the least. But I'm I'm very happy with uh, with what I've done and the 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 
people that I've worked with. It's, it's been pretty great. And as a storyteller, as well as a developer of the story, what films and tales inspired this? Because this is not a typical Saw journey in the least. You could take the horror out and you're telling an emotional drama of someone losing hope. Horror is this beautiful catalyst to give it a physicality. So what, what brought you into this? This is a different heart. Well, uh, I can say that, um, you know, a decision was made back in uh, 2006, I think, to, uh, to kill Jigsaw off <laughs> in yes. Saw 3. And I think that there was great integrity um, behind that choice uh, mm -hmm. on, on James and Lee's part. But, um, you know, the rest of us, starting with you, who uh, wrote Saw 4 with your, your buddy Patrick Melton, um, realized that that doesn't really make sense for future films, even though we all love Saw and wanted to keep making movies. So we had to um, come up with ways to keep Tobin Bell's character in the story, even though we saw him die. And um, that was accomplished through two ways. There were uh, people that carry the mantle, um, uh, apprentices or copycats and that sort of thing. And, uh, and then we would include uh, John Kramer in the stories through flashbacks. It, it got hard though. It gets harder every single time. And um, by the time they made uh, uh, Saw 9, which was released as a spiral, he's not even in the movie. And even the, the puppet Bill, Billy that we all love was not in the film. And this script had been written long before that movie. Right. It Excellent. was it was written, I think, in uh, in 2017 and shelved. I hadn't read it at the time I'd heard about it, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was kind of uh, kind of this mini legend. Uh, they made the Chris Rock movie. Yes. And then uh, January of last year, they called me and said, would you read this? And, you know, in my heart, I'm like these movies, it's it's become too hard. It's just too hard to make a satisfying movie that includes John Kramer but only in flashbacks. And I read it and there was like super obvious genius to this story. It's like, just set it between Saw 1 and 2 mm -hmm. where he's still alive. You don't have to have any flashbacks. You don't have to do any of the kind of uh, convoluted storytelling that we'd done in, uh, in 4 through 9 and make it all about him. It, it seemed in some ways counterintuitive to, to make your villain make your monster be so exposed to the audience. You know, it's the opposite of the, mm -hmm. the, the lesson of Jaws and Alien. But we went for it, and I, uh, I really wanted to, to, to give Tobin Bell an opportunity to, to make this his great work, right? And he, he's always inhabited the character in a, in a, in a way that's kind of, kind of weird to experience it. I mean, you know him. Absolutely. He, he is John Kramer. He's the nicest guy in the world and would never hurt a fly, mm -hmm. but there is something in his personality that has carried this saga forward and is, is, is the most, it, it is the essential element. Like we just wouldn't have it without him. No, he keeps finding new things to say. And so You've been the constant narrator of this franchise from the very first episode. Saw one, the the only constant voice in all of them, other than the appearance or mention of John Kramer, has been Kevin. So now with this, what is it Kevin wanted to say? What is something that you wanted to bring? So you had the bones of the narrative. What is it that you were like, no, if I'm doing this and I'm giving, what is it you wish to say? Well... I think the, the the theme that carried us through uh, was inherent in the in the materials, but mm -hmm. it, it it is the idea of hope, and that John Kramer thought he was at the end of the tunnel, and he's he saw a ray of light, 
in the face of Cecilia Peterson. He had hope, so that's really what, what was guiding us, and then the, the notion of hope destroyed, right? So at the end of the first act, he realizes he's been swindled, and <laughs> the rest is is this movie. So it's it's really pretty simple that way, but uh, in my first meeting with Tobin, that's, that's what we talked about. And uh, I would say in my first meeting with Charlie Clouser, the composer, that was the thing that we talked about, and, and we never stopped talking about it, right? Well, speaking to that, the Sonic character is also different. Charlie Clouser had a different challenge. The first act of this movie is a different type of film entirely. There are three benchmarks of how different it is. Cosmetically, there's daylight, there's exteriors, there's Mexico. And if I'm not mistaken, Mexico is not the original location because of some real-world events. Or could you speak to the original intent of where this was to be shot and the gifts of where it was shot? Right, sure. Um, we'll come back to the Charlie Clouser thing. Yes. Because that, that, that is uh, you know, part of the history of this movie. It was written to take place in Eastern Europe, and uh, we were originally going to shoot in Bulgaria. And um, you know, obviously the script was pretty different uh, as a result. And then, um, I don't know, Really, just a few weeks before we went into uh, into hard prep, Mark Berg called and said, uh, "What do you think about shooting in Mexico City?" Yes, and <laughs> the, the, like the instant I heard it, it just electrified me. I'm like, "Hell yes! That is that is like the way to make this movie really stand out because you know Eastern Europe. It's a you know beautiful place steeped in history, all that. But I don't think that we this movie would be anywhere near as good if we had followed through with that." Um, you know, within the, within the first minute of, of talking about it with him, I was imagining all the, the Aztec statue imagery, the themes of, of, of the, you know, the kind of dark colonial history and, uh, you know, and the previous to colonialism there and, uh, the, the, the talent base there mm -hmm. for, for the actors and, uh, the crew, but particularly the actors was just off the charts, you know, uh, this, oh, this to, to me, at least this was the best acting we've ever had in a, in a saw film. Yeah, absolutely far. seamless. And if I, well, okay, I'll jump back to Charlie. So <laughs> now you have these new instruments and these beautiful performances, this new location, the movie sounds different. Right. And so, um, again, starting with Tobin, he had a very big concern that, um, his character who is intellectually flawless, in all the other films, like if he makes a mistake, it was all part of the plan and he can, <laughs> he can anticipate everything that anybody's going to do. And it's sort of inherent to the structure of this movie that he does have to screw up and, and he screws up at least twice in really big ways. And so it was extremely important to him and the rest of us that he doesn't come off as stupid for falling for, um, Cecilia's scam. And, we wrote a lot of dialogue um, that we shot that's not in the movie. I mean, some of it is, but we, we cut a lot out. But it was a lot of very well-researched um, medical blah 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 mm -hmm. for, for Cecilia and the others to, to use to show him that they all really know what they're doing. What I found, though, that what really made it seem like John wasn't a fool for falling into this trap was... The, the lighting, the the beauty of the Mexican setting, and even yes. frankly, Cecilia herself in her you know clinic that where we first talked to her on the phone, um, the warmth of Gabriella when he arrives at the hacienda, and she you know Cecilia had the foresight to have this sort of welcoming presence to 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 sell the trust, and then the music, 
right? And mm-hmm. so the temp that I used in this film was, you know, stuff you would never <laughs> imagine in a Saw movie, right? To kind of set Please the share. table. Yeah. And sure. What would, what would, the, where did the temp come from? Lo- lots of places, but, um, you know, some of the, some of the kind of perky stuff, uh, on his first arrival in, um, Mexico was from inventing Anna, that, uh, that TV <laughs> show. Uh, there was some, some Alexander Depla from the, um, birth, this kind of perky sci-fi music that was playing when he goes into the clinic and meets Mm -hmm. Parker Sears. And then um, just like assorted cello themes and uh, some choral stuff, it it sounded kind of bonkers as temp and, you know, some eyebrows were raised, but I really wanted to help show Charlie the way to find something else. And, you know, he was, he was a little bit nervous at first as well, but uh, you know, his background, he he played for Nine Inch Nails during their heyday in the 90s. And so that's that's like his sound. He has the an, an unbelievably huge uh, music sample library, and it's almost all non-musical, right? It's bowed metal and screeches <laughs> and animal sounds and all this stuff. And so that's that's his main vocabulary, but he can still do you know, process piano and, and process harp and things like that. And so re- really the, the probably more than half the work that we did, you know, together on the music was that first third of the movie. And, you know, he, he worked like hell to, to find the tones that wouldn't make you cringe. Cause there's some stuff in there that is really pushing the envelope for a saw film. But if we didn't find that and relied too much on, you know, the kind of stuff we had in the past when we had what passes for a tender moment in a Saw movie. Certainly. It just wouldn't have been enough for that effect that we were going for, that psychological effect for John Kramer. Well, what I appreciated about the sonic journey is, and when what Charlie did beautifully was, the man responds to corners well. And he will go, I don't know, man, I don't have this in my echelon. And then he'll be like, well, <laughs> let's see what you do. And he does it. And what we heard tonight was warmth. For the, the the soundscape is usually coming from busted metal and nails on That's the right. nails on the ground and grits and and scraping and sure. this this really started with heartstrings. But but it still sounds like him. Yes, you know. I mean, I think we we nailed it in that regard. Yes, just and then beautiful. Uh, that uh, the scene where John realizes he's been swindled and he pulls his uh, his bandage off. The temp for that was from uh, the fountain that Clint Mansell score Marvelous. and. Uh, you know, he did his own thing to it the same way he did his own thing to the Lux Eterna from, from Red Green for a Dream back in Saw 1, which James uh, had us cut in for that. Uh, and, you know, so those two influences were really big in the origination of the original Saw, Saw musical sound. But yes. um, he definitely gave it its own spin. And, uh, yeah, I'm really pleased with where the music landed. Tobin Bell. So Tobin Bell, this is, for such a remarkable actor, this is his first leading role. In all of cinema history, and this is someone who was the bail bondsman in Goodfellas. This is someone who came in to threaten and save the day in Mississippi Burning. And yet here we are at the age of 80. He's leading the role. Boy, does he hold the center. But he does not hold it alone for, uh, I believe, you fought to bring in the key part. This, the person he could talk to, Shawnee Smith. Can you speak to to protecting that and really fighting for it behind the scenes so their conversation could keep building a heart even as the blood starts to drop well shawnee was in the uh the script 
when it came to me. Um, and uh, it was the one that we first did together, Saw Six, where yes. that's that's where, the it, you know, it really came down to, we must have her in the movie. She's a fan favorite and she's a wonderful person and yeah. we, we love her character. So I think um, that was another lesson that uh, was learned was that we got to bring mm -hmm. some of these people back because uh, they're so beloved. Um, I hadn't seen either of them in a, in a few years when I read the script and in my head I was like, I hope they still look good because yeah. <laughs> those earlier movies, you know, were shot something like 15, 16, 17 years ago. Actually, nine, 20 years ago, we shot Saw One, Great right? Spot. And and both of them are in that film. So obviously there's, um, you know, aging has happened and, and de-aging has not. Uh, we didn't do anything digital in this film at all. Uh, we couldn't afford it on the one hand, but also uh, it can distance the audience a bit. From, from actors, I think. And so I didn't really want to do it. The, the, the one thing that we did do that uh, I, was, I was happy about was um, we have an amazing uh, cinematographer, a camera operator, Nick Matthews, and we tested the hell out of um, filters and okay. wound up going with a pearlescent one for almost everything in the movie. Um, it had a side effect that I wound up liking a lot, which was that it created a kind of halation to the um, the, the on-screen lights, right? I don't yes. know how noticeable. I mean, it, it's pretty noticeable to me, but I don't know if it was distracting. I hope it wasn't. But, no. uh, you, you know, it, it, to, to me it added a kind of beauty to places where it shouldn't be. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know. I, I really dug it. And it, it definitely helped soften both their faces. In terms of the production, you also did something that's a minor miracle, knowing that we've been set to expect a, a bit of violence, viscera, almost every 9 to 15 minutes in a Saw movie. Right. Yet you have protected nearly 30 minutes of character development with a, a fantasy trap, but really no real-life earthly viscera in the world of the movie. How did you protect that? Well, um we didn't really have much choice because there was simply no reason to cut to a traditional saw crazy trap in the middle of a, of all that. And in fact, the fantasy trap at the beginning was something that we uh, just shoehorned in. <laughs> it wasn't in the script, but we're, we're like, we, we have to have something in here. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it feels a little bit weird to me in some ways because, you know, John just found out he's going to die gets a sip of water, <laughs> sees yep. a guy being bad, and it's like, well, <laughs> you're going down. It's like, but, you know, then once he lets him go, it's like, well, now it's back time, dying of cancer. You know, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a little ludicrous, but we, we really did have to do it because I just didn't know if the audience was going to bear with us during that, that long stretch. Um, for the most part, from people that I've talked to, you know, that are hardcore Saw fans, they're like, oh, hell yeah, you know, we got to spend all that time with John, so we don't mind, but... It, you, you know, traditionally, yes, the, the rule is that every 10 minutes at the most, you have to have, a, a, you know, a signature sauce. Nasty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought it was uh, uh, I thought it was brilliant because it showed the bull of violence he was holding back the entire time. Once his hope is gone, that's what's that's what's there. And yeah. so it, it buys us that critical. It, it also buys us some sympathy for this person, too. Like he will instill justice with his last time. Uh, speaking to production challenges, could you speak to the one that kind of happened behind the scene? You not mm. only were the editor working with yourself as director and storyteller and protector, but 
there was a moment in production where you had to be a lifesaver for the entirety. <laughs> well, uh, if we're talking about the same thing, and I think yes. we are, um, you know, we went down to Mexico in, uh, I think, July and had our, had our plan for hiring absolutely everybody locally, right? Mm -hmm. um, because there is enough of a talent base uh, with the crews and actors down in Mexico City that you, uh, on paper, can do that. But it's also a very popular place to film. And I went out to lots of DPs and production designers and, um, and prosthetics people and visual effects people and all that and really had trouble finding, you know, people that would do it for our price and, uh, and, and had, the, had the ability to pull it off because it's very hard, especially the prosthetics on this movie. Um, you, you, you really got to do a lot. And we, had, we got set back somewhat because when we first went into it, there was somebody we had in mind and that fell apart. And then we had another person that was in mind. And there was a day, I don't know, two weeks maybe before shooting where we lost them. They said, we, we simply can't do this. We haven't cast all the characters and we need to do life casts of all of them. And it's going to take at least six weeks after making the life cast to, to create all the, you know, the infrastructure for the prosthetics to do all this stuff. And uh, they pulled the plug on the movie, right? Uh, it was a Thursday where I got the call and uh, it was a bad call. And we kind of went through the weekend, uh, you know, my wife and a visiting friend and I and were like, well, let's see what's going on. Dia de los Muertos <laughs> is coming up. Uh, but then on Monday, uh, I went into the office like, surely someone else will come in. And of course, it was our amazing production designer, Anthony Stabley, Nick Matthews, a DP, and um, Barbara Cole, our, uh, our first AD. And we're just like, we're going to figure this out. And um, we laid out a shooting schedule that had three weeks that we would start shooting, um, you know, when we were supposed to and shoot everything that didn't involve prosthetics. And then we'd take a, a, a five or six week hiatus while those prosthetics were made and then resume in January. And we pitched that idea and they said yes. And uh, it kind of saved it. And, and frankly, it was, uh, it, was, it was really great to have a five week hiatus in the middle of shooting. I've never had anything like that and uh, used it well. Uh, we were shooting six days weeks, six day weeks. So, um, you know, that those, that, that, that Saturday and Sunday period is very useful and to lose one of those days, uh, sucks. But, um, anyways, we got the, the five weeks and then glory be, we were halfway through the second part of the shoot and I got COVID and that was another <laughs> five days where I got to sit in my room <laughs> doing storyboards and uh, shot lists. So, uh, you know, I was very blessed. Yes. <laughs> Well, I think the blessing is also bestowed upon the audience because there's one thing I think is remarkable about this is you have experience through all ups and downs and middles of how to produce and drag something across the line, help it grow. What were the biggest bouts of experience that helped save the day on this one? And what did this particular shooting experience teach you? What was the new thing that came about? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, as you, as you direct more and more, you, uh, you get more knowledge accumulated. Um, as I edit more in particular, I, uh, I learn more about what I do and don't need. Um, Tobin might argue with that because uh, <laughs> after we shot that big scene where we first see everybody locked up in their environment and he has that amazing speech, he took me aside and said, you need to find like a mentor director who tells you 
how to not shoot every single camera angle that's imaginable because it drove everybody kind of crazy. But anyways, <laughs> I, I get drunk on coverage, but uh, that's the editor in me. Um, in any event, uh, I, I would say that um, prior to this, I relied on all the great assistant directors that I've worked with to, to figure out a lot of stuff that, you know, ADs do. Um, in the case of this film, we, uh, because of the schedule, we wound up losing that great AD, uh, after the first half of the shoot and got a replacement who was also good, but he just wasn't up to speed in the same way. Sure. And, um, I had to really think like an AD in a way that, uh, is does not come naturally to an editor because editors just sit around in the cutting room and talk about what losers the people on the set are because they didn't shoot everything that you want. You know what I mean? So, uh, uh, I, I wound up having some of the ADs say to me at the end of the shoot, like, you must've been a great AD back in the day. And I'm like, no, it would, but the, the ADs that I worked with on my previous films would laugh their heads off if they, if they heard someone say that about me. But you know, I definitely learned a lot about how that whole world works. How many days was production all in? We shot 34 days, but, um, there's kind of an odd system that I don't, I don't really understand fully in Mexico where you're paying for six day weeks. But Saturdays are considered half days, so you have to stop by three. Okay. So if you work late on a Friday, you have to come in late on a Saturday, and you have to. So it's it's sort of it's sort of a waste. It's enough of a distraction that it kind of blows up your Saturday if you're thinking of you know using that for planning. But in any event, it, so it was 34 days of shooting, including those six lame ass half Saturdays. Which then I you know, praise to the production for not bestowing this. Oh, it's a horror movie. You can do it in 19 days. This is given the time it seems that it needs and the resources to boot. Like those are flawless special effects. Did you have a second unit? We did have a second unit. Um, they shot uh, the exteriors of the taxi moving through the city and uh, the, the VFX plates of the hill where the radio tower is. Okay. Not, not a lot. I think there were two days of second unit. Speaking to that epic coverage, how is that planned out? And how many, let's say, if we were to say, okay, you're walking in and doing the leg trap, how many days did you give that? How, how many days did the editor want? And did the director and the editor, both being you, get what they needed? Well, it's hard. You know, those, those scenes are the hardest things I've ever shot, those kinds of scenes. And, you know, you know, you've worked on, on saws and, and, and similar movies. So, um, you, you, you always, you always want two days to shoot something like that. And you, sometimes you get it, but usually you just get one. And there was, there was a point on, on this shoot, you know, we were mostly moving in chronicle, chronological order once we were in that main location, uh, where we had to do three deaths in a row, like one day after the other, the Valentina death, the Gabriella and the Mateo. And, it's just hard. It's so, it's so exhausting. And they're, you know, they're very firm about finishing on, on each day on schedule. There just isn't that wiggle room, you know, that you sometimes have on, on American union productions, you know, I appreciate, um, your choice of aspect ratio. Mm. And would you mind speaking to that as, as part of how you use that as a storyteller? Saw one, two, four, oh, but Kevin's saws, or more in the, the 185? Well, uh, it was very deliberate, and um, Saw 1 is 185. 
I am completely wrong. But Saw that's that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> it's uh, the first uh, the first um, to to go widescreen was um, was uh, uh, Jigsaw Saw Eight. Gotcha. And. I have shot movies in widescreen and, and it's, it's more appropriate for some films than others in something like this. Uh, I, there's a lot of very fast editing and in most of the saws, that's the case. And when you get into widescreen, the, 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 the audience eye fixes in weird places that makes cuts a little bit more jarring. Right. And, um, you know, I lean towards the center of the screen in ways that make some cinematographers annoyed because <laughs> it's not artful, but it 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 makes for an, an easier easier on the eye experience for the audience, I think. Um, but, you know, every film is different, but I had no doubt in my mind I wanted to return to 185 for this film. So you just delivered a big hit for Lionsgate. If you could say, I want to do this next, this is the type of story I want to tell, what would the ideal Kevin follow-up be? <laughs> well, uh, as much as I love horror, I do want to um, to try other things, and uh, I haven't really been given that, that opportunity yet, so, uh, you know, my tastes skew more towards sci-fi and, and dark comedy and, uh, and that kind of thing. The scripts that I've written, none of which uh, I've been able to direct, um, include like a South Pacific boys adventure in the vein of treasure Island and, uh, a right. death Valley, uh, search and rescue gone wrong. No country for old men type story. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I have a, last year I wrote a, a, a kind of eco thriller monster movie that may, maybe of all those is, is, is possible. will get made anyways. Um, I, I want to try it all. Ending with musical, but I, I love musicals, okay. but I don't want to, I don't want to <laughs> blow any <laughs> cash is, on that. What is the story from this shoot that you most cherish? What's the one you're going to take forward and be like, this is me. Wow. That's hard. I wish you'd warn me. Okay. Cause I would have <laughs> thought of something. No, it's a, it's a very legit, uh, um, question. Um, dang. All right. I can jump uh, no, back no, to no, it. no. There's, there's just so many. It really was, uh, it was the, the, the best movie making experience I ever had. It, it, it really was. And, and all the cast were angels. The crew was fantastic. Um, you know, that one of the last days of shooting actually was the last day, uh, was when we, uh, had the little boy covered in blood and, and Tobin and, and Shawnee all covered in blood. And it, it was, physically uncomfortable for for tobin you know to do all that and uh um you know i tried i tried not to linger on things but uh that little boy is like a gentleman on a level <laughs> i've never met <laughs> in anyone he is so nice and he he was just glowing basking yep. in the glory of sitting around covered in blood for 12 hours on a cold uh you know abandoned <laughs> factory in the middle of mexico city it was really neat well, I thought it was I thought it was very shrewd uh, how you cut the subplot where the little boy was a jaywalker and deserved absolutely everything that happened to him. <laughs> uh, that's Saw 11. Yeah. <laughs> Either that or he becomes the new Jigsaw. <laughs> Speaking of, well, now that the universe has expanded and become more intimate, if you were to author where this narrative goes, where does it go from here? Long meeting this morning <laughs> with the team. Uh, okay. it's, it's way too early to tell. Okay. You know, because I'm obviously there. There's a version that 
picks up immediately where this one leaves off, but it's way too early to tell. All right. And with our final minute, what is something you wish to, maybe this is like a, a big zooming out kind of moment, but you always say something personal with every movie you've made. That's what I think is wonderful. You're, you're as much a part of these as any of the characters or any of the traps. What is something you are so eager to say? I just wanted there to be some beauty in this movie because I just don't get to do that that much. And um, it might have felt a little forced, but uh, I really loved having that sunset or sunrise shot at the end of the movie that if this is the last Saw movie that has Tobin Bell in it, I really wanted to give the character a send off, you know, like he's going to serial killer heaven or something like that. Uh, it, you know, it, to me, it just felt very emotionally unexpected to, to try for this. And hopefully it worked. It more than worked. You continue to prove you put art in heart. And thank you. Thank you, Kevin, for the best damn saw we've seen. <laughs> thank you. Well, one of many. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. Right on. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.